So hello everyone and good evening from the central time zone in North America where I'm at. Welcome to AO Trauma North America's Journal Club series for the month of April. Tonight we're focusing on clavicle fractures. My name is Steve Turney. I'm one of the moderators for this evening and I'll be joined by my co-moderators Mike Tallarico and Chris Domes. We have an excellent international faculty tonight including Mike McKee, Jamie Nicholson, and Tim Aker here to discuss their landmark articles on clavicle fracture fixation. For the disclosures for this event, I've personally reviewed all potential conflicts of interest and these were mitigated to the extent that as, was, uh, as much as possible. All of your microphones will be muted and your videos will be turned off. Please make sure you use the Q&A function in Zoom to direct uh, discussion questions to the moderators. We will help uh, collate these as we go along for the evening and then for the discussion section, we will present them to the faculty. Briefly, the agenda for this evening, we are in the introduction right now. We will go through the video interviews which were pre-recorded. First up will be Dr. Nicholson being interviewed by Dr. Domes. Dr. McKee then will have the second video being interviewed by uh, Dr. Tallarico. And then finally, myself will be interviewing Dr. Aker. We will then move on to the question and answer and discussion forum, and then wrap up just past the hour uh, with some final closing thoughts and, uh, and uh, uh, revisiting our learning objectives for the evening. Briefly, uh, to prepare you for this evening, we'd like for the participants and learners to be able to, first off, understand the risk factors for clavicle non-union. We'd like for you to recognize the potential benefits for clavicle fracture fixation, especially in those that might go on to non-union. And then also, importantly, understand the complications that are associated with clavicle fracture fixation and how you might mitigate those complications for your patients. Without further ado, we'll then move on to the first video with Dr. Nichols. I'm Dr. Christopher Gomes, and I'd like to thank Dr. Jamie Nicholson to discuss his paper, Displaced Midshaft Clavicle Fracture Union can be accurately predicted with a delayed assessment at six weeks following injury. So first off, I'd like to thank, uh, thank you, Dr. Jamie Nicholson, for being able to uh, join us in this webinar and, and in this pre-recorded uh, little session here. Um, so I'd like to... Lions based on factors present at the time of injury only. We found three clinical objective markers at the six week mark, which predict fracture healing, and they're pretty simple to carry out in a fracture clinic. And I think it's worth highlighting that in the cohort, the majority of the patients, we could in theory predict their fracture healing based on those three factors. So if you had non present at six weeks, your risk of non union was only 3%, whereas if you had more than two, then that risk of non-union went up to greater than 50%. And interestingly, it was half of the cohort had none of those risk factors, so very low risk of non-union. 
and only less than a quarter of the cohort had two or more. So actually the majority of the patients declare themselves quite early on. So I think that gives justification to clinicians to present the idea of an initial trial of non-operative management and potentially intervening early if patients aren't recovering as expected. The Edinburgh group has a long history of clavicle fracture research with some very significant papers on causes of non-union, cost analysis, and outcomes with operative versus non-operative management. How did the previous research that you guys have put forth kind of influence or lead to this study? Absolutely, and thanks. Um, I mean, Mike Robinson really needs to be credited. He's been involved with clavicle research for the best part of 25 years now, and he continues to be a driving force behind a lot of these research ideas. I guess an important paper to highlight is his 2013 JBGS trial, which importantly said that if you unite your fracture, then your outcome seems to be comparable to that of acute clay fixation. And that really for us placed the emphasis on the value of non-union. That was followed up by looking at some of the other important decision makers which influence our management, such as the cost effectiveness and the malunion effects um, by that CT clavicle shortening paper um, in the JBS about two years ago. But importantly, it was the non-union prediction which, which really interested us. So that 2014 paper by Ian Murray, which looked at the risk factors that predict non-union at the time of injury, really extensively looked at all of the available information at the time of injury alone. So to really improve that, we then started to think about, well, what about um, following injury? Because if we don't make that initial decision to operate straight away, there's potentially more information available in that early recovery phase that allows us to pick out those patients which do poorly. So that was really the context for this paper was to look at all of the available information at around the six-week mark with a very standardized protocol in a specific big prospective cohort with all the displacement shaft fractures in our units, which are generally managed non-operatively, to try and really flesh out what available information at that stage guided non-union at six months, and crucially, to try and critically appraise if that was more helpful than trying to make an estimate at the time of injury alone. Yeah, that's absolutely uh, a great rundown of kind of where you guys have been and then, and then where you're coming from. So with that knowledge, this paper that you've done now, what do you think the next steps are going to be in, in clavicle research, especially from uh, your group who's, who's done some of the, the forefront uh, decision-making papers on this? I mean, I'm... I'm Fascinating. Clavicle research has been part of my um, PhD work, and I think we're increasingly seeing the argument now shift towards more targeted fixation because we're getting evidence suggests that you do pretty well if you unite your fracture and then sense that the malunions are quite well tolerated. And we know it's potentially over-aggressive and um, it's not cost-effective, as we've shown, to be routinely fixing all these fractures. So I think the two big things left are refining that non-union prediction and whether we have more information we could add to that six-week model or we could potentially shift that non-union prediction down to around the four-week mark. We've been interested in looking at adjuncts to that, and, and we've done a little bit of work on ultrasound scanning to see if callus can be picked out earlier than what you'd find on the x-rays. And that seems to be quite helpful. We've 
Polishnik produced a paper in the whole in joint research looking at that. So I think that non-union prediction will continue to improve. And the other area that we've recently looked at is the early recovery we often associate with acute pay fixation, whether that's actually as good as we think it is, and whether that's simply because we reduce the non-union burden and that poor recovery with non-operative management. We've got a paper coming out in the Bowling Joint Journal shortly showing that actually if you just look at those patients who unite their fractures, even that early recovery is quite comparable to acute plate fixation. And again, places a bit more emphasis on that non-union prediction model. So how has this paper really changed your practice uh, clinically or has it changed your practice clinically? Absolutely, it's a good, a good question. I guess as a, as a unit, we've seen our own pendulum swing from essentially non-operative manage, non management of all these injuries prior to the COX trial to, to quite aggressive fixation um, in the first few years after the COX trial where there was quite a lot of enthusiasm. And then following um, really Mike Robinson's trial in, in 2013, a lot of the unit became very conservative with these injuries. And, and quite a lot of them, uh, or the majority of them for that matter, were not operated on um, acutely. And that then meant that we were picking out the non-unions at around the three to six month mark. And I think we were recognizing that there was some morbidity with that approach and we were leaving patients for quite a long time. So I think what this paper's done is, is justify the practice of, of trying to pick out those patients earlier, which are going to do poorly, and potentially giving some numbers that we can discuss with patients with regards to their potential risks of, of, of healing their fracture or going on to a non-union to try and inform that decision-making process. And we are seeing um, a few of our attendings now intervening at around the six to eight week mark in those patients who are doing poorly. And I think that's a practice which is becoming more common in the UK not necessarily directly result of this paper, but um, that observation that in those patients who had trials on operative management and were having a very poor recovery, potentially intervening in them. So I think this paper adds a little bit of justification to that practice, um, particularly the figure where we show the quick dash goal in the union versus non-union group. We can see those groups split very early. So I think that's given some justification to pick out the patients who are doing poorly earlier on. Yeah, I would agree. I think that's how, in reading and reviewing this paper, it really helps direct me too, because we treat a vast majority of our patients non-operatively, and you never know when to necessarily pull the trigger on. Do I wait another six weeks? Do I wait three months? Do I do something now? How miserable does the patient really have to be before I pull the trigger and offer them a, a surgical intervention that may help them and may get this uh, fracture unite. So I do have to say just thank you so much for taking the time to uh, be with us to do this pre-recorded se uh, section, as well as also hopefully during our webinar as well. Um, I think that your guys' research in the Edinburgh group has is, is really led the way in a lot of our ways that we think about clavicle clavicle fractures, how we manage them, and, and more specifically about non-unions, what leads to them, and, and how we might be able to treat them better in the future. Thanks, Chris, and pleasure to, to be here again, so thank you. Yeah. Great, so that concludes the first video. We'll then move on to the second video, uh, Dr. McKee being uh, interviewed. Um, um,
for his uh, landmark paper. So good evening, Dr. McKee. Uh, we're here tonight for AO North America Journal Club series discussing clavicle fractures. And tonight I'll be discussing with you your uh, paper along with your Canadian Orthopedic Trauma Society colleagues in the 2007 Journal of uh, Bone and Joint Surgery titled Non-Operative Treatment Compared with Plate, Compared with plate Fixation of Displaced Mid-Shaft Clavicular Fractures. Um, thank you so much for agreeing to participate in this. It's my pleasure, Mike. It's uh, great chatting with you. Happy to, happy to be part of this whole thing. Um, so I'll go ahead and start off with what prompted you and your colleagues to perform this study? Um, when I returned to St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto to uh, start my general practice, uh, it was known I had a real interest in upper extremity uh, issues, and I was seeing a lot of patients with bad results after clavicle fractures, malunion, nonunion, et cetera. I'd always been taught that clavicle fractures did well, but it became very clear that that was not the case and that a lot of patients were very unhappy with um, non-operative treatment. I also uh, did some cases by fixing clavicle fractures and found that uh, they did extremely well and they were very happy. And so it became clear to me that there was a significant discrepancy between what had been taught that all clavicle fractures do well treated non-operatively and what I was actually seeing. And a number of other people in my group felt the same way. And that's really what prompted our study to look in a scientific way uh, at whether clavicle fractures benefit from operative fixation or not. Was there any significant pushback at the time from any partners or colleagues about looking at this? Absolutely. So some of the more established people in, in the group and in Canada in general, and, and in the States for that matter, felt it was almost unethical to randomize a patient to operative fixation of the clavicle. And I heard that word over and over again uh, when we were trying to hash out a protocol and get grant funding for it and bouncy idea of different people. Uh, they said, I'd never put my patients in a study like that and some effort will do it and they all do well. And you're gonna introduce a host of complications completely unnecessarily. And there was significant pushback in, uh, in initiating that study, absolutely. How we're taking from that, how do you think the results of this paper with your colleagues have impacted your clinical practice and the orthopedic community at large? Well, I think it revolutionized practice, really. Um, I, I don't think that's too strong a word to use. If you look at the rate of clavicle fracture fixation in North America, for example, after 2007, it's, it's really taken off. And you could argue it's gone too far in the other direction, and that might be valid. But certainly before then, it was you know, one or two or three percent of clavicle fractures are getting fixed. And since 2007, if you look at that uh, graph of, of operative intervention rates, that's the inflection point of the curve. And now 20, 30, 40% of clavicle fractures are getting fixed. So it definitely changed practice, I think. And in my own practice, it, it just made me feel a whole lot better about offering a young active person with a badly displaced fracture that had all the risk factors for a poor outcome with non-operative treatment. It made me feel much better about saying that patient, yeah, you, I think we should fix your clavicle and I think you'll do well with it. Do you, uh, you said that you feel like the pendulum may have swung too far can you elaborate on that where you think it might have changed practice too much or in a different direction that was over overcompensated a lot of people quote our paper and say oh that paper says that you know you should fix all displaced clavicle fractures and that's not really what we said what we did say was that um, there are certain clavicle fractures in young healthy patients if they're badly displaced that there are certain advantages to fixing that fracture in terms of a lower non-union rate a lower uh, symptomatic malunion rate a push for a turning function etc 
it, it didn't mandate the test it's called topical fractures. And there's lots of room still for non-operative treatment. And I still treat most topical fractures I see non-operatively. Um, but for certain individuals, it, there really are some definite benefits. And what it does give you is it gives you the information needed to have uh, a good, intelligent conversation with your patient, what the pros and cons are of intervention, and then you can decide with your patient what's best. And uh, I think that a number of other subsequent studies have pretty much mirrored the data we found in our study. And the, the raw data coming out shows that operative intervention has a non-union rate of 1% or less. The non-union rate and the non-operative group is usually 15 20%. Those, those raw numbers are very similar amongst all the studies. The conclusions you draw from the studies may be different and reasonably so, but at least now we have some good data to talk to people about what the best treatment options are for them. Do you feel like this paper is still relevant in comparison to those, the more recent studies that have come out looking at mid-shot clavicle fractures? I think it's still relevant. It's, it's still uh, nice to see that a lot of those more modern studies basically replicate the numbers we found more or less. Like, the non-operative group hasn't changed much in, compared to uh, our study to the ones that have come out recently. Operative techniques have changed a bit, and you know, I'm sure we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, and I'm very open to the discussion on that. Uh, so I think that it's kind of complementary rather than anything else. But yeah, I think it's still relevant. Understood. In your own, in your own words, what do you feel like the limitations of this study were? I think the, one of the main limitations is it didn't really look at adolescents much. We have just a couple of 16 and 17 year olds in our study, and I, I kind of wish we had included younger patients, but that wasn't feasible at the time. I think one of the main controversies now is you know, what do you do with the adolescent uh, fracture, especially in, a, in an athlete um, who has a you know a throwing arm or, or golfs or a hockey player with a badly displaced and shortened clavicle fracture, and they're 16. What's the optimal treatment for that? We don't know really what that is. Uh, I think that. Um, some of those fractures should be fixed. I think most of them can be left alone, uh, but we really don't have that data. You know, it would have been nice to include more adolescent patients in our table, but really, really didn't do that. So that that is still an answer. That's I think something we desperately need is a good RCT um, in the adolescent patient. And I've suggested that numerous times, and I've heard the exact same pushback we heard before with the adult patients. Oh, it's not not necessary. It's unethical to randomize patients. Blah blah blah. I think someone needs to do that study though. Okay. So that leads into the next question. If you had the chance, would you have done anything differently with your with your you and your colleagues study or study design or study location at the time in the early 2000s? I think if I look back at it, I, I would like to include adolescent patients. I might have we might have toyed around with using a superior versus an anterior plate with a little bit of different technique, like Taking the author group and, and broken up into a couple different uh, different groups, seeing what the difference was in terms of plate irritation, et cetera, et cetera. We didn't do that because it was we were at a very primitive stage in topical fracture fixation back then. Uh, but I think it would have been nice to finesse it with uh, some of those other things. And if we got more numbers and we were able to look at you know different types of plating, I think that would have been good. I think that's one of the unanswered questions now. And certainly there's some preliminary information that dual plating or anterior plating might be better, might decrease the hardware removal rate, which is, you know, remains a significant issue. We don't really have any good prospective um, data on that. We have a lot of, 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 of retrospective reviews or if one person does it this way and says we're all great, that kind of thing. We need a good uh, objective criteria, objective outcome, randomized study looking at different fixation techniques. I know I've heard you uh, discuss it in person as well as it's a little bit discussed in the discussion portion of the paper regarding 
patient expectations. Do you think if this study was done in a different country or different geographic location that you would have different results? Uh, I think the results would be the same. I think the non-union, delayed union, non-union rates would be about the same. The one thing I'm very impressed about is the cultural differences in approach to surgery. And having you know traveled a, a fair bit in Britain, especially Edinburgh, which has been one of the highlight centers in Europe for this kind of, of uh, research, and working in Canada and the States, there's significant cultural differences in, in patients' approach to surgery. Um, some cultures, especially American culture, want surgery. They they think it's the best. They want to get back quickly. There's a tremendous time imperative in, in their society. Other uh, societies aren't like that. They're perfectly happy to wait six or eight weeks to have a deal. And, and that, I'm not saying one's right and one's wrong. I'm just very much impressed by the difference, uh, different approaches in different places. And, you know, doctors tailor their approach to the place they work in, and naturally so. And then uh, the final prompted question is, you alluded to with adolescents, but do you think there's any other areas of research regarding mid-shaft clavicle fractures that you think would be would add to the uh, orthopedic literature and in, in clinical experience. I think the the one thing that remains the drawback of of clavicle uh, fracture fixation is the rate of hardware plate removal, which is irritation. And I think a good study looking at different techniques of superior versus anterior plating, dual mini plating, etc., and having some kind of objective criteria to decide whether to remove the plate or not. You know, hard removal is one of the most subjective things in the world. And we all know that in the clinic, you can block a patient into or out of hard removal a lot of the time, depending on your, how you slant the conversation. But something that looks at an objective uh, way of how much the plate bothering the patient, and then the objective decision, and then at an objective time to remove it or not, that would be a good study that would help us perfect our technique and minimize the main reason for your operation, which is hardware removal. That would be a good study. Excellent. And then lastly, is there anything about this paper that you feel strongly in, in summary that you have added to orthopedic trauma as well as upper extremity surgery? Uh, for me, this paper, I think, uh, opened the door for like-minded individuals to start fixing clavicle fractures in appropriate patients, and it gave them the scientific, um, gave them the scientific uh, backing to do so. And a lot of patients said, I love that, or a lot of uh, surgeons said, I love this paper because it allows me to do what I think is best for my patients um, and has, gives me the scientific backing to do so. On a secondary note, it also helped our society, the Canadian Orthopedic Trauma Society, dwell together. This was a major success for us, a major endeavor. Um, it was a very prominent paper, won a number of awards, and it really helped cement or, 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 or coalesce our group as an investigation group. I'm going for it. We have, we have papers before that were high profile and good, no question about it. But this one really, I think, put us over the top and, and cemented that the bonds of our, our group that continue to this day. And I, I remain very pleased about that. Well, I can say thank you enough for your time and your discussion of this uh, landmark paper. And I really appreciate it. No problem, Mike. Great to chat again. Great. And with that, we'll move on to the final paper. Pre-recorded video. All right, perfect. So, uh, thanks for joining us tonight. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, so, we're reviewing that article um, from a few years back where you looked at plating clavicles as mini fragment plates. And uh, just to bring it back to when you guys started this study, what was the impetus for you guys taking this on? Yeah. So this this technique was something that I first learned about back in fellowship in 08 
And everyone has a friend who had a clavicle fracture, but then they know that their friend or their uncle had to have that plate removed at some point because it was bothering him. Uh, and so yeah, this, this changes that conversation significantly. Um, so I guess other than the fact that you found more patients that actually showed up for follow-up, was there anything in particular that was surprising about this um, when you actually sat down and looked at the results? Um, you know, one thing that did surprise me was uh, Corey Chaika, the, the lead author on this paper, also thought it would be interesting just to look at implant costs. And uh, my personal hypothesis would be that without knowing the exact prices of the implants that we're using, I don't ballpark, but not necessarily the exact price. I really assumed that anatomic pre-contoured locking plates with locking screws and these locking constructs would really be much more expensive than just generic synthes, you know, 2.7 plates, 2.4 plates with hybrid fixation of some cortical and some locking screws. Um, but what we found was that actually the, the two plates were more expensive than one. Um, I really thought that the anatomic pre-contoured moniker would really drive the price a whole lot higher. Um, so I think that the dual plate construct actually was a couple hundred bucks more expensive, which did surprise me in the end, but that didn't really, it wasn't enough to sway my opinion with all the construct that was changed that I was going to do. Right, because I guess in the end, although you spend a little bit more time in the OR, maybe a little bit more in the plates, you're not going to have the cost of the return trip to the OR almost certainly, unless there's you know some other cast off failure or weightlifting or whatever, right? Yes, absolutely. Is there anything in retrospect that you would do differently for the study? Did you think that there's a, a way that uh, you could have gone about it differently at the time? Um, I, I suppose, you know, JOT really likes one-year follow-up. If you're going to have a retrospective study, they'd like you to have one-year follow-up for your patients. So we did with 81 of our patients, but we do with 125 total. Now, not all of them um, had one-year follow-up. But I think um, from a realistic standpoint, I mean, our encastment area is large enough. Patients might live three, four hours away. Um, if someone is seen back at their six-month follow-up and they are healed and they are back to work, do, do, we, do I need to see them back at the one-year follow-up just for academic reasons and, you know, nothing ruins results like follow-up, right? Except if they're already healed and they're already back to work, uh, I think I would have pushed a little harder to have more patients included if they reached the final endpoint of union and back to work with no pain. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the other thing that was interesting to me is that you're able to gather quick staff from all these patients. Is that something that you had to ask? Or, I don't know if you remember, did you just call them and get that? Or is that something that you're already taking in in the clinic? No, this is something that I think more and more practices are now capturing data at time zero when the patients come in with modern technology and iPads and smartphones and all of this. Um, we traditionally have been a little slow to the game with all of that for these. To my knowledge, this was an awful lot of phone calls. This yeah. was quick staff. A lot of them were over the phone. A lot of them were utilizing in our attachment area Spanish translators. Um, but uh, it was successful nonetheless at, at 
remembering that as you've done this several hundred times or however many provinces you're testing in a year, have you ever found that the implants that are described in the study, the Cindy's implants, are you know filling so so many holes, and other implant companies may have uh, you know longer place available? Have you had to fit it to some of these other companies, or um, have you stuck with the tried and true uh, stainless steel, you know, two seven up top, and then two four in the front? Yeah, I would say uh, probably of all clavicles that I've fixed, I'd say probably 90 to 95% get the blue plate special, the standard construct of a 2.7 superior, 2.4 anterior. But of course, every once in a while, there's a fracture that has a very long ovary split. Um, and uh, the symptoms living fragment plates are only so long so far. And so I have gone and explored other vendors with longer plates and even uh, for sewing fractures, just gone back to a three five, you know, anatomic free conference plate that come in a variety of lengths that can span the entire clavicle if you need to. Um, because for sure, I would rather have too long of a working length construct than too short. I mean, we've all seen and had our own clavicles fall apart. And usually the number one risk factor is yeah, the plate construct was a little short on one end or the other. So I would always err on going long, even if it might mean now I have to use a bulkier implant with the risk of higher risk of hardware removal. Great. Uh, I think that about does it. Uh, you have any other final parting thoughts um, before we talk to you? No, this is fun. I mean, this is. It's some clavicles. I mean, keep in mind, um, I'm sure we'll talk about this during the live session, but um, not all clavicles are operative. With the, the ones that we are fixing are oftentimes in the setting of polytraumatized patients that allow them to get up and use their crutches with less pain and mobilize easier. Um, but uh, even that being said, this construct, we do allow for full immediate weight bearing for mobilization purposes. I don't think the patients need to go out and start doing bench press, but if they need their clavicle for mobilization, absolutely. The mini fragment dual plate constructs seem to have been strong enough for that. Um, it's, been a, it's been a fun technique in tried and true. As you can see in the numbers, we use it an awful lot here in Houston. Um, so for those that are tuning in and exploring clavicle fixation, I would encourage them to uh, give it a look. With which, whichever vendor they're comfortable utilizing. Awesome. All right, great. Thanks so much. All right, and with that, we'll ask that the moderators and the faculty turn on their videos and um, we'll enter the live Q&A portion of the evening. Thanks uh, everyone again for being here. Um, Chris and, uh, and Mike for helping to moderate and then the authors all being here. That's uh, really quite wonderful. No problem. Thanks, everybody. Uh, just to direct everybody, if you do have questions, go to the Q&A. Uh, Dr. Nicholson and our other uh, participants have already been answering some of those as well. One question that I had uh, that I think that I, I kind of have the semblance of an idea of what Dr. Nicholson would agree based on his paper, but directed to Dr. Aker and uh, Dr. McKee, what time period are you guys calling uh, clavicles non-united to where you may proceed with another intervention or operative fixation? 
for me, a, a non-union is, is usually around six months or so. So uh, I like to make the decision whether to fix a clavicle fracture uh, right off the bat in most cases. I understand the rationale behind waiting to see which are the good actors and which they're bad actors and how they're going to declare themselves. The only thing there I would say is that um, one of the major benefits, especially if you're an active person to having your fracture fixed is you get that early return to doing things, especially for an athlete or you work with your hands, et cetera. So to wait six or eight or 12 weeks and then have it fixed is kind of counterintuitive. You lose a lot of the benefit of having early intervention. So I like to try and decide uh, early um, whether someone's going to benefit from the uh, fixation or not. And the other thing is there, there are some papers in literature that talk about complications with delayed fixation. And you know, there's one of talking about neurological complications at six weeks. And I think there's one from Edinburgh talking about how if you wait three months to fix a clavicle fracture, your rate of a major revision surgery goes up pretty significantly. So that's another thing to consider in, in the delayed um, treatment arm if you're thinking about that as a, as a way of treating your patients. Yeah, I agree with Mike completely. I think we tend to be a bit aggressive uh, here in Houston. We fix a lot of clavicles. I think we're treating them more and more like humeral shaft fractures. That being said, it's really about the informed consent process. I mean, it's a, it's a conversation with the patient. It's discussing their risks and benefits. And uh, oftentimes in the setting of poly, polytrauma, similar to a humeral shaft, once a patient has their clavicle stabilized, they're, they're just able to mobilize so much quicker, so much better. They feel better. They can use their arm. We allow them with uh, activities related to crutches, and walkers, et cetera. Um, so I think one of the keys, like Mike said, is trying to avoid uh, non-union surgery. Uh, but in doing so, you know, like, like the other articles have mentioned, uh, widely displaced uh, patients were very uncomfortable early on. Often, uh, they just do a whole lot better with early surgery. Can I ask to the panel of Dr. McKee, Dr. Aker, and Dr. Nicholson, do you change your post-operative protocol for the polytraumatized patient, meaning multiple extremity or multi-system, versus an isolated weekend warrior, isolated clavicle fracture? Is there a different weight-bearing or range of motion or activity level you recommend for those patients? I think one thing that's important to remember is that um, what we ask patients to do post-op and what they actually do are often two very separate things. And a lot of my patients, basically, if it doesn't hurt, they're going to do it. And if it hurts, they back off of it. So uh, one of the things I learned very early on in the fixation clavicle fraction, I used to have this elaborate rehab schedule, you know, like changed every week, blah, blah, blah. Patients come back at, at two weeks with their sling off already saying, hey, it feels pretty good. And I think that I changed because of that. And so um, just keep in mind that what you ask them to do and what they do are often two separate things. In general, if you're going to fix a polytrauma patient, uh, you want to fix them well enough that they can use their arm immediately to get up and get around. There's no point in fixing them and saying, okay, you can't use your arm for six weeks. That's, that doesn't make any sense. So in general, I might use a bit more fixation in a polytrauma patient knowing that they're going to be walking with a walker or with crutches if they have other fractures, for example. But in general, I let them do things pretty much right away. For the polytrauma patients, I let them uh, weight bearers tolerated for activities where they need to weight bearers tolerated. If they need to help push themselves out of bed to get onto a 
bedside commode. If they need to use the crutches, then we allow that. For the weekend warrior isolated clavicle, we do, I, I slow them down weight bearing related for the first six weeks because there's no need. There's no need to push it. Why push the envelope? I mean, I, I believe in our constructs and I know they're strong, uh, but why push the envelope and risk it if uh, you're only asking them to wait six weeks? That being said, we, we do allow otherwise activities is tolerated as far as range of motion, active, active assist therapy, just no weight bearing. Thank you. And kind of along the lines with the polytraumatized patient, does a certain, there's a question from the uh, attendees about number of rib fractures or associated ipsilateral thorax uh, injuries. How much does that play a role in your decision-making to fix someone acutely in the hospital? Uh, it, it does have some influence. I, I think there are papers that would suggest if you have multiple rib fractures, and, and a displaced ipsilateral clavicle fracture, um, that your prognosis is not quite as good as an isolated fracture. Uh, it takes longer to get going, a little bit higher delayed non-union rate, and your fracture is more likely to meet operative criteria if you have multiple ipsilateral fractures. I've been impressed by how much better people feel um, if they have their clavicle fix, fixed in that setting. And it's almost like the, their entire forequarter is destabilized in that kind of setting. So. In general, that's a relative indication for, for me to recommend that uh, their clavicle be fixed. And as you know, there's a tremendous interest now in fixing rib fractures if you have a flail chest associated with that. And that's often the case in a polytrauma patient. So and we have some experience in fixing flail chest and associate with a clavicle fracture. And I think if you're, if those two things coexist, you should probably do them both. Um, I wouldn't recommend fixing ribs if there's an isolated rib fracture, for example, but if you have a flail segment and a displaced clavicle fracture, I think that's a relative indication to fix them both, frankly. Jamie, if I might interrupt, what's the, uh, what's the approach to clavicle fractures in the polytraumatized patient at your center? Yeah, absolutely, thanks. Uh, so mirror Dr. McKee's um, comments there, and I'm, I'm aware of some papers suggesting that particularly the first, first rib fracture associated with clavicles is a high risk of non-union, which probably mirrors some of the severity of the injury. I have to admit we're, we're pretty conservative with clavicles in, in the polytrauma setting. Um, if they're going for a flail segment fixation and, and, and as part of that chest wall treatment, then, then the clavicle would get fixed. But I'm not sure um, if they have the same merit for early weight bearing in terms of support with a gutter frame or something like that, as much as a humeral shaft would be in the polytrauma setting. So where you're normally pretty conservative with them, um, unless the patients are going to theatre for other reasons, if they've got a conservatively managed chest injury um, and they're not needing to go for the long bone fixation, for example, then, then we're, we're pretty conservative with them in the first instance. If you're, if you're going to operate them anyways, Jamie, and you're going to be there anyways, I mean, does that not influence you a little bit towards fixing them? If, you, if the patient's going to, it's, all, oh, it's a risk-benefit balance. If the patient takes yes. the risk of the surgery, et cetera, and you're there, and that might Absolutely. be a bit different. Do you agree? Absolutely. I think if, if you're going there to, to fix a femoral shaft or, or radial shaft, et cetera, they will certainly highlight that to patients um, and, and give them the option. Um, and it would be very reasonable to do it in the same sitting, as you say, if you're in the theater anyway. If you had, if you yourself, God forbid, had a femoral shaft fracture, the clavicle fracture, and you were going to get your femur nailed, would you want your clavicle fixed? I, I'd buy it in that setting. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Not that I'm hoping it happens. 
I definitely want mine fixed in that setting. I, I hear what you're saying. One question is, what are you guys, uh, or how are you guys directing patients with bilateral, bilateral clavicle fractures, say one displaced and one non-displaced? Maybe set that over to Dr. Nicholson first. Good, good question. I don't think I've actually ever seen that before. Um, and I've looked over a lot of our historical data at Edinburgh, and we've followed up quite a lot of patients over around about a three-year period. It's, I think that's a very rare thing. Just, I guess the mechanism is you usually take the fall on one side. Um, I, I guess if one's undisplaced, then uh, in our units, both of them will get managed on up initially, unless the patients have a very strong idea that they want to go ahead and get it fixed. Dr. Aker, Dr. McKee. Yeah, I don't know. It changed. I'm sorry. I, I was going to say I don't. I don't know that it changes a whole lot. Uh, the having a fracture on both sides. I think I would still treat each fracture individually and, and look at the patient as a whole and see what other injuries they have and and you know again informed consent. I know there's a lot of folks who advocate for non-operative management of clavicles, but if you have an informed consent and you have a, a reasonable discussion with the patient and they choose to have it fixed you know once upon a time the board answer was always trial of non-operative management for humoral isolated humoral shaft fractures well while that may still be the case if you have a discussion with the patient and they'd rather not be in a fracture brace for the next month with their arm flailing around then that's that's the choice that the patient can make and the same goes for a clavicle so i think uh um the patient's always right I don't, I'm not sure that I've seen many bilateral clavicle fractures like that. So I would agree with Jamie. It's a pretty rare event. I just would treat them individually as, as what, uh, whatever the individual fracture dictated. And, you know, towards Tim's point about uh, humeral shaft fractures, for sure, I, I grew up in the Sarmiento brace era and we rarely operated an isolated fracture of the humeral shaft back in the day. Uh, but we're fixing more and more primarily now. And there's some evidence to support that. So if you look at the there was a randomized trial from Finland that came out. It was in JAMA, which is a pretty high-impact journal. It recommended uh, there are definitely a, uh, some indications to fix them early. There's a much higher non-union rate, delayed union rate than we thought for humeral shaft fractures. And a surprising number of people who had a non-operative treatment had their fracture eventually heal. But if you ask them, were you happy with you know, your treatment? They're not particularly happy with how long it took to get better. And so they would said, if I had known there was an option to get it fixed right after that, I would have taken that. And there's another huge study from Montreal coming out, I think hopefully the next year or so, about 180 patients randomized surgery, no surgery. So I think definitely there'll be some good scientific data to say if you have a humeral shaft fracture um, isolated and somebody wants to get back to doing things quickly, there's pretty good basis for, for doing that. And I think we'll see that in the future. Not unlike clavicle fractures have kind of changed a bit too. Another question is, does anybody have any experience with intermedullary devices for clavicle fixation? I'm aware of increasing literature on them, um, but it's, it's something that we've never really bought into at Edinburgh. There, there's, I mean, the IM fixation devices in North America have a, have a traditionally a bad track record um, and, and they're, they're not very popular. I think the numbers would suggest maybe 80 or 90% of clavicle fractures fixed. North America, you, they use plates. There are some new devices out in the market. Um, there's a, a lockable contoured uh, clavicle nail. Um, I had some experience with that. 
I did a trial of, of 10 cases, just see what it was like. And I picked people with a, who had a big canal because it's about a four millimeter nail and who had a simple fracture pattern. And for those patients, it worked pretty well, actually. And uh, I was pretty pleased with it. Um, if they have a very small canal, then you have to be very careful about trying to wedge that nail in. And if you have a comminuted fracture pattern, I'm not sure it's that good either. But I mean, Carl Basmania in North America is a big proponent of that device. And, um, and uh, it, it may be a good thing, but in general, it has not translated into widespread acceptance in North America, at least. I know in, in other countries, there's interest with the titanium elastic nails. There's a couple of studies from uh, Europe and Holland looking at that from the Far East. And they seem to have pretty good results with, although the removal rate's very high, most of them end up coming out one way or another. And you do lose a little bit of length with them in a commute fracture. But if you have a skill with the device and <clears throat> you have a simple fracture card, I think it may be a, a role for it in some situations. To all the panelists, um, something that I've encountered early on in uh, my career is uh, sort of the opposite, flip the script a little bit. You have a patient that has a displaced clavicle. It looks like it's not gonna unite. Uh, you, know, you know, I guess, you, you know, you're playing the waiting game and nothing seems to be happening two to four weeks down the road, but they're feeling all right, uh, despite the fact that it looks like it's not gonna unite. Do you advise them any differently if you see the non-union coming down the road or if they're feeling all right, do you just let the non-union happen? Um, so, certainly our experience at Edinburgh is that that does occasionally occur. It's usually in the um, more elderly and, and lower demand. And, and we know probably around 70 to 80% of, of mid-shaft clavicles end up being symptomatic with a non-union, but, but certainly some people will get that kind of pseudo osteoporosis and, and a false joint or a fibrous union and, and seem to tolerate it okay. Um, and I, I don't think there's huge amount of evidence to suggest that um, if you if you have a pain-free fibrous union at six months, they, they come to any major harm. So I, I think it would be worthwhile highlighting that they may end up with a non-union, but if they have very little pain and little morbidity, then I think it would be very reasonable to continue to manage it non-operatively. Uh, I, I would agree with that. So as long as they know what's going on, I say, hey, the x-ray is not changing much, but if you're looking, if you're feeling good and your motion's coming back, you want to wait it out, I've got no problem with that. And especially elderly people or more lateral fractures and uh, not that active, they're often quite fine with a, with a radiographic non-union and you can save them an unnecessary operation. So if they're clinically improving and, and you tell them the x-ray is not getting better, you document that, but everyone's good with the plan to leave it alone. I, I agree completely with Jamie. Many of those patients escape having anything done long-term. You know, Steve, if I could just tell you a quick anecdote. Over my short career, I've had not that many patient complaints lodged against me, but two very memorable patient complaints where they wrote letters to the hospital were in patients that were uh, and one was a car accident, one was a bicycle accident, and uh, they both had isolated clavicle fractures. The house staff spoke to them in the ER about their options, and they were like, okay, well, if I don't need surgery, I don't really want it, and they left. They followed up with outside orthopedic surgeons who insisted that we didn't know what we were doing. Of course, this needed surgery, and what, that's, what they didn't operate on this, that's wild. And then in, they get surgery elsewhere and then write letters to the hospital saying how poorly they were treated because 
well, they, they were told they needed surgery. So Steve, let me ask you, how do, how do you react to patients that leave and get surgery elsewhere and say, uh, you told me I didn't need surgery and, not, and another doc said I had to have surgery, now I'm angry. Yeah, I mean, I think part of this is, how, like you said, it's the informed consent discussion, right? I mean, I don't, I, I try and have that discussion personally with them. And if they are refusing an operation and they're going to leave the hospital, then I'd like to have that discussion with them and not just, um, you know, leave it to the, the junior house staff or whatever it may be. Um, but yeah, there's, there's been a couple that I, I recommended an operation. They didn't. And then they, they, you know, they came back for a couple of follow-ups. They seem to be doing fine. And they, they discharged from my clinic at, uh, you know, about uh, one was at three months and one was at six. So I, I don't know, really know what the end result was, but they, they didn't write letters. That's all I know. <laughs> that, I, I, I would say that it's unfortunate that your colleague who saw them in that setting was so unprofessional in their behavior. That's what I would say to that. I, and that's, that was, Mike, that was exactly my response. I said, if there's any malpractice here, it's, it's of the other uh, fella down the street who insisted upon operating on you when I, I still maintain you didn't need a surgery. And so uh, that's how we responded to both of those complaints. But um, sometimes it's tricky because, you know, the house staff sees a lot of patients in the middle of the night, they're dispoed and they're sent home before we have a chance to see them. And that's going to happen at academic centers. But um, just to, for all the folks that are tuned in, just it's just a good reminder that you might think clavicle fractures are, are a pretty benign, simple injury, but uh, they've been some of my bi biggest headaches in practice when I thought I was doing the right thing, you know? It's interesting. People people will anchor onto what the A&E doctor tells them as yes. well. And But yes. what this person said this, and, and they look at you like they're mad when you show them their displaced x-ray and think you're some sort of monster if you don't want to jump in sometimes. <laughs> When, when, when we were doing the clavicle study, one of the worst things was that the patient in the ER would get contaminated by an opinion of what they needed. And once that happened, mm. trying to put them in a randomized trial was next to impossible. So we had to have a special meeting telling all of our house staff and the ER docs, when you see a patient eligible for the study, do not contaminate their mind with what your opinion is. Just leave it for us. And I've been in situations where I've been in the clinic and a medical student has seen some of the minimally displaced clavicle fractures. Said, "Oh, Doctor McKee would fix that for sure." And I'm, in the, I'm in the clinic trying to convince that person, "You do not need an operation." And they're like, "Are you sure, Doctor? You know, because they told me I did." <laughs> it's a very funny situation to uh, to uh, be in. Where I, and it's analogous to someone's come to a used car lot, and the used car salesman is saying, "Don't buy this car," and they're still trying to buy it. <laughs> not have any interest in buying it so as an aside if you're running a randomized trial make sure that the that no one contaminates the patient's thoughts with what they absolutely have to have early on because it makes it very difficult to get someone in that study if they do that another question um is how acutely are you fixing these if, if you've made the decision to fix them are you trying to do them within a week two weeks four weeks what's your guys' practice I'll say one brief thing there. If you decide to fix it, then the sooner the better, frankly. If one of the benefits of fixation is early return to function, then for me, logistically, as soon as possible, essentially. Agreed. And if we see them in the hospital and they're admitted, we try to fix them as soon as it's safe, as soon as the ICU clears them. 
uh, et cetera. Um, otherwise, from an, from an outpatient perspective, yeah, we get them on the books as soon as we can, as soon as it's it's possible. It's maybe the slight difference with our healthcare systems is that we we won't routinely see these patients in, until the, the the two to three week mark in in the clinic because all of the X-rays will get triaged by one of the um, consultants and and then brought back to clinic at around the two to three week mark to to have a chat with a senior attending at that point about definitive management going forward but um we often wouldn't wouldn't see these guys initially from the AE department um unless they had another injury for example would you rather fix them earlier jamie if you could potentially i think it may well i guess persuade decision making with patients as well though potentially if you see them in the first day or two after their injury when it, their whole world has collapsed versus seeing them at the two to three two to three week mark maybe maybe that's a little bit unfair but uh, they've They've, they've already had a, a trial of non-op and then there's potentially an argument to, to proceed with that and then intervene at the four to six week mark. I know that's a very common practice now in a lot of parts of the UK um, out with our unit and, and seems to be a reasonably pragmatic way of, of dealing with some of these injuries. Another question is, are you, if you do fix these, are you discharging your patients with slings or are you letting them go without slings? Sling for comfort for a week or two and then it's, it's, they get rid of it at that point usually. Just for comfort, simple sling just for comfort. They can come out to bathe or shower in a couple of days, keyboard, whatever. Agree, the less sling, the better. This is a question for the panelists. Um, is there anyone who they meet the radiographic criteria for operative intervention, but are there any patient subgroups, comorbidities that you withhold surgery from in the first two weeks or you choose to really trial non-operative with? Uh, I'll answer that. So yeah, there's a bunch of people, but substance abusers, that's the number one thing. So we looked at a bunch of our patients that we fixed um, back at St. Mike's and if you were a substance abuser and you had your clavicle fracture fixed, your rate of having a, a bad complication was literally 10 or 20 times greater than the average person. There's nothing I can put inside a clavicle, pre-contraplate, double plate, whatever, that will stand up to a drunken fall down the stairs or fight in the bar next week. It is, you, I'd be very, very careful about substance abusers and clavicle fracture fixation, as well as the usual you know, diabetics, heart failure, blah, blah, blah. Of course, they don't need it. But, but young active people who are substance abusers, I'm very, very cautious about offering them fixation because we've had such a bad experience with it. I feel very firmly about that. I'm not sure how the, uh, the panel members feel about heavy smokers. We, we know that smoking paradoxically is a risk factor for non-union, but I'm also aware of some literature suggesting that your, your risk of ongoing non-union after having your clavicle plated as a, as a heavy smoking can be as, as, as high as five to 10%, which is almost the natural history of non-operative management anyway. Um, I'm not sure if that's something you, you counsel patients heavily on that essentially they're, they're reducing the benefit of any merits of the fixation. Sam? Yeah, I would say that uh, if substance abuse was a contraindication to fixing clavicles, then in Houston, I wouldn't have any clavicles to operate on. <laughs> Most of our patients are, you know, I mean, uh, we've noticed, uh, it's, uh, 
it would be unusual for our polytraumatized patients to have a negative drug screen. Um, so I haven't had the same experience as Mike. I mean, maybe after their major accident, maybe they have a come to Jesus meeting with themselves and realize they need to clean up their act. But uh, no, I, I mean, most of the time, if I see an obvious indication for surgery, but the patient is, you know, we have MD Anderson down the street. We have a lot of cancer patients. We have sick old patients on chemotherapy, immunocompromised. Um, all of these will obviously think twice and, and absolutely lean towards conservative management. Thank you. Question from the audience. Is anybody using TXA in their surgical uh, interventions? That's transexamic acid? No, not, not for clavicle. I was, I was just responding to that in the chat. For the non-unions and, and any acute ones, certainly Mike Robinson would, would tend to uh, local infiltrate with, with local anadrolin. I'm not sure if that's what other panel guys do. I, I use it for a lot of stuff like pelvic fractures, the hemiarthroplasty. I haven't used it for clavicle fractures yet, but maybe someone should do a study. I mean, it's it, you'd be un, I think you'd be unlikely to show much of a difference in terms of overall blood loss or transfusion rates, but maybe you could show a difference in decreased local swelling or hematoma formation. That might be something to aim for in a study, but I, I don't. I mean, it's pretty rare to have to transfuse a clavicle fracture, maybe unless something went desperately wrong. So. I haven't used it much. I'm not sure if that will stop the subclavian vein injury. Yeah, if you broke a hole in the vein, it's not going to stop it anyways. More TXA. Are you guys using uh, regional blocks at all in your operative management of clavicle fractures? Yes, yes. So somewhat reluctantly, frankly, but... Uh, um, I'll, I'll allow it if it's if the patient's a relatively fresh fracture um, and they have no preoperative neurological symptoms, then I say yes. I think if you have someone, especially around six to 12 weeks out, who's got some vague paresthesia and you're going to be stretching things back out, I'd very much prefer not to have a block in that patient. Um, I think it's a double hit potential. If they do wake up you know, with, a, with some numbness or dysfunction in their arm and you don't know what did it, and it can really confuse the picture going forward. So for a straightforward cases, no, no neurology, uh, I'll say yes. Um, in delayed presentation, malunion or non-union will be stretching things out. If they have any kind of symptomatology, then, then generally I'd ask them not to do the blocks. I generally do not use them, but that has more to do with, I, I would, I would be comfortable with them, but that has, it has more to do with my comfort level with our regional anesthesia team and their abilities rather than the procedures itself. Yeah, I'd mirror up exactly what the other panels were saying. This is another question from the audience. We'll start with you, Dr. Nicholson. Is there a uh, standard for your operative room setup with respect to operating table and fluoroscopy position within the room? Uh, yeah, we, we, we tend to do sort of semi-beach chair position. I'm, I'm aware of a lot of centers doing sort of full supine um, with, with some of these patients. I guess you already risk with the sort of semi-beach chair. We find it makes the reduction a little bit easier. Um, you, you, you can get 
your air ambulator, something just to make sure your anesthetic team are, are aware of. If you do have during an unlucky vein injury, as rare as that is, um, and then usually the the CRM would would come in from the opposite side of the table. I know some place some some surgeons don't don't use intraoperative imaging, but we would most surgeons now unit would tend to get a, an X-ray at the end of the case just to make sure you don't have an unexpected long screw or something slightly um, unappetizing on your on your post-op X-ray in the first clinic. Yeah, I would agree. I, I, this, go ahead, Tim. I was just going to say that the semi uh, beach chair position, from a um, very specific standpoint, we use the OSI flat table with there's a there's about a 20 degree foam wedge, an anesthesia pillow called a troop pillow that we use, and it just it kind of elevates the thorax and the, the head and neck nicely and it. Again, it's not it's not straight supine, but it's not it's not some kind of fancy table like a spider or anything else that you have to kind of connect all kinds of other devices. It's just a flat table with a, a troop pillow that we use to elevate the chest. Yeah, same here. I go for simplicity. So it's, it's a regular table. It has a realistic extension. I sit them up about 30, 45 degrees. Uh, image comes in from the far side. I use very little image. Usually I'll, I'll do the case and in the case I'll take a quick picture to make sure I haven't done something horribly wrong or left the screw way too long. And uh, that's about it basically. The image times usually, you know, three or four seconds, that's it. I've seen people fix clavicle fractures, you know, watching every screw and every drill on the image. And I don't think that's necessary. I think that's a lot of radiation for you. It should not in general be necessary in my opinion. Dr. McKee, what specific images are you getting at the conclusion of your procedure? I take a, a, an AP and an upshot, and that's it. Pretty simple stuff, just like you would in the, in the ER in the clinic. That way you can compare them to what's, uh, what happens uh, you know, down the road if anything changes. Standard ID. Is anybody getting a full chest x-ray? So I have on occasion when, when there's an intraoperative event that's that, you know, when you see something like air bubbling up through the bottom of the wound, yes. So I've done that a couple of times, um, and if the, you know, we we back a long time ago when we were first trying to figure out what was going on uh, with clavicle fractures. We we had a few situations where people have rib fractures that are chest tube. We put them on positive pressure ventilation. They blew a normal some point during the case. Very thin people, um, very thin women. The the rib cages are surprisingly close to your drills. Um, so. If you're worried about anything intrathoracic happening, that's worth taking a chest X-ray. I've done that on occasion. The occult pneumo that blows up under positive pressure ventilation or some kind of interoperative event with a very thin, frail person. So, yes. I think uh, we've got time for one more question. I saw it in the uh, the Q and A section. Uh, do you have any particular uh, physical therapy that you prescribe for the patients afterward, you know, aside from the sling, uh, you know, get rid of it as quickly as you can. Uh, do you have prescribed physical therapy, range of motion, things like that, or you just uh, let them fly and then physical therapy later if they need it? I, I would rarely, I don't prescribe physical therapy for clavicle fractures much. For any, any patient who's, who, who's got any ounce of motivation, I, I don't think it's usually necessary. So maybe either a calcium patient or a non-union or something, but for the vast majority of fresh fractures, you know, they have, we have a little sheet, we give them and say, hey, do this, see you later. And with Jamie, or Tim, do you, uh, 
No, no, unless unless um, people need a bit of en encouragement and and yeah. always that worrying sign of still coming in in their sling at the at the six. And we have seen a reasonable number of adhesive capsulitis, um, particularly with some of the delayed unions, um, and and that's maybe just one to look out for that you don't get caught out with a with a very painful um, frozen shoulder um, with, a, with a fairly quiet. Um, uniting fracture or, or potential fibrous union um, but it's often patients who I think who do very little in those early few weeks um, who, who may well go on to that. Yeah well in Houston we we are one of the fattest cities in the U.S. and as such we are one of the most uh, unmotivated cities as well. <laughs> uh, I wish my patients were as motivated as y'all's but uh, generally once they're discharged, um, we give them the first 10 days off. Uh, again, get out of the sling as much as possible. When they come back to, for a wound check and to get their sutures out, I do give them a formal prescription for therapy. That's essentially activities as tolerated, all modalities, et cetera, just non-weight bearing. And that's for the first six weeks. At six weeks, uh, I allow them to progress weight bearing slowly to uh, whatever they would, they would like. In fact, we've operated on professional football players, professional soccer players, and usually around six to eight weeks, we're allowing them back to full full play, so. Yeah, you know, on, that, on that point, just briefly, I mean, uh, if, you have an, if you have a displaced acute mid-shaft clavicle fracture in a North American professional league, be it football or hockey or soccer, pretty much the standard of care now is to have that fixed surgically. And there's some pretty good data that, um, that supports that, especially uh, for getting back to play earlier and, and actually reducing the refracture rate. So there's a good paper from um, Atlanta about that. So for elite contact leagues in North America, it's pretty much standard care now to have your fracture fixed if, if you have it. I think the proof's in the pudding that it's clear those, those people get back quicker and, and have a better long-term prognosis if it's fixed. Great. So I think that uh, that takes up all of our time for the Q&A session. I really wanted to thank the moderators and especially the uh, the faculty that were able to join us, uh, Dr. McKee, Dr. Aker, uh, especially Dr. Nicholson. I think it, you may have the record um, for the uh, faculty willing to stay up the latest. It's it's like well past midnight. Uh, at home. So <laughs> really appreciate it. Uh, with that, we'll we'll jump back in and uh, summarize uh, what we've gone over this evening. So. Um, Remember the take home messages for uh, this evening, what we wanted y'all to, to remember from this discussion tonight is that clavicle fractures reliably will heal, but certain fractures uh, and factors are gonna predispose them to non-union. So if patients have a quick dash greater than 40 at the six week mark, if they have gross motion or no callus, they may be ones that you might wanna jump on uh, sooner rather than later. Remember clavicle fractures, uh, if you fix them, especially if they're gonna go into non-union, you're probably gonna improve their outcomes, improve constant scores, improve dash scores and generalize happier patients. Uh, and then remember, if you're gonna take care of these patients and, and uh, prescribe them an operation, infection and plate prominence are common complications uh, when you do decide to take them to the theater. So uh, there are methods to reduce the risk of those complications. Uh, the, the place that you put the plate, whether it's anterior inferior plating or mini fragment or dual plating, that may reduce the, the implant prominence and the uh, secondary surgery. So. Uh, that will conclude the journal club discussion for this evening. We do have two other journal clubs that are on the schedule. We have May 18th, we'll, we'll be covering distal femur fractures and then June 15th, where we'll be talking about distal humerus fractures. 
uh, afterward, the recording will be available on YouTube and the AO North America um, uh, website, and then uh, stay on board and we'll get the Q, um, the questionnaire out to you, excuse me, that we can get you your CME as quick as possible. And that should do it. Thank you everyone so much for, for your participation uh, and uh, have a good evening.